Uh, good morning and time for the Fuzziologic Science Show here on 2XX. As I said a moment ago, we're going to go into the theme of nautical stuff today. And where did that silly voice come from? I promise not to do too much of the faux pirate voice today. But uh, this will give you a clue as to where that particular way of talking came from. It's good to feel your shoulder beneath my hand again. <laughs> Tis a long time since Treasure Island. <sighs> What's the matter, lad? Cat got your tongue. You're still a pirate. Pirate, says you. Why, even with only five toes, I, I'd cut and rip if it, if it weren't for the little girl. How can we save her? Arr... Long John moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> oh, that is absolutely classic stuff. That is, of course, Long John Silver. And did you know that that comes from an Australian movie, uh, Treasure Island, of course? And uh, the actor was John Newton, who died in 1956. And uh, joining me on this particular voyage this morning, I have Phil Hoare from the National Dinosaur Museum. And a good morning to you, Phil. I want to go, nyar. How, how you be? <laughs> well, I did promise we're not going to do too much of that uh, horror, horror stuff. I promise nothing. <laughs> but but uh, it's interesting how that uh, that particular way of talking has become associated with pirates. And I think it's largely because of that movie. Uh, last night I was watching a bit of it on uh, YouTube and uh, he's such a character. Rolls his eyes. <laughs> well, it's like a lot of things, I, I dare say, we get from movies and TV shows that weren't probably as accurate as we'd like them to have been. Um, I don't know if it's based on any particular historical figure, whether it's a Welsh accent, wouldn't it be, Phil? Well, um, you know, uh, the, the, a lot of the sailors would have been coming from all over the world, not just England either. So, you know, the, yes. uh, like a, a lot of the ships that were sailing through the Pacific, they had a lot of Chinese and, and uh, Asian people on board. No, so. Lascars, are, are they uh, Malaysian, um, Asian of some sort? Well, if, the, if it was the, the Spanish, you'd be getting them from the, that, that side of like the uh, Indonesia. But um, the French, the French had huge colonies in India and uh, China. So, you know, uh, when they needed, a lot of sailors would die on these voyages. So they'd top up their, their, their membership by just taking some crew off uh, local barges and things. And so, yeah, like uh, when, it, when a lot of white faces on these boats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess... Um we tend to have a very Anglo-centric view of navigation and so on. That, in fact, is our theme today, as I said. I just want to do a quick overview of what it takes to put one of these things together. A voyage, a long ocean voyage, is not a trivial exercise, right? There's a huge amount of, dare I say, science, technology, engineering and mathematics that goes into doing a voyage. Especially if you want to come back. <laughs> Yeah, and it has a kind of a resonance with uh, voyages to Mars. Now, a few weeks ago, we interviewed the president of the United States Mars Society, and he was a great character, all enthusiastic about why human humans, why humanity should go to the red planet. But just quickly before I go into the, the major facets of what's required for a, a voyage, Phil, uh, you've got a, a real personal interest and you've been writing books uh, on navigation, haven't you? Yeah, I've been uh, collecting stories because I, I kept finding these very strange stories that 
didn't quite gel with the way we were taught how things happened and and i've just been collecting them over years and been forming them into our books and things so um uh, the, the history of the australian and uh, the colonization of australia is not the way we think it happened it's completely different uh look it's absolutely yeah yeah we tend to think, oh, when it's in school, you know, our oh, Captain Cook discovered Australia. That is so wrong in so many ways. <laughs> every way. In every way. <laughs> he discovered Sydney. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, of course, the uh, Aborigines were here like 40,000, 50,000, maybe longer, who knows, years ago. I just got back from Lake Mungo, in fact, and the human remains, they date 40,000 years. Those Mungo remains are amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's a really bleak place. Beautiful, but I think I want to go back and explore it, but go in winter, not not in summer. <laughs> yeah, so here are the major things you need to put together in order to get a successful voyage, ocean voyage, and as you said, Phil, <laughs> one which entails coming home again. <laughs> uh, first of all, you've got to have the ship, right? I know this is a bit obvious, but there's all sorts of these facets that go with that. Uh, you need to be able to navigate, so where the hell are you going? And if you've ever been lost, I might tell a story about that in a minute. Uh, you need to feed yourselves, so all the facets of nutrition. And then you need something which probably most people would forget to put on their list. Uh, you need organisation. You need a structure of the way we work together as humans. So even in the studio now, like we're operating under the auspices of two double X, and we've got our little structure. We have a little protocol between Phil and I. We agree that I talk, and then you know we don't talk over each other. Or whatever, we talk about science. But uh, to run a ship, you need a captain, you need a crew, you need to acknowledge the hierarchy, you need a discipline, and dare I say, it, you need budget and you need some money. And at this point, I'll slip in a quick note about our radiothon. Uh, if you like fuzzy logic, you like two double X, keep us on air, please. We really love your support, and uh, a dollar would help as well. Give us a call in the studio. We're going to be uh, playing lots of songs this morning, and I uh, will give you the number in a second. And um, I'm rambling, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I dive in? <laughs> dive in, Phil. Let's talk about the ship. Well, like it, the, the the probably the best way to think about it for us is the um the either the Cook voyage or the first fleet because yes. the first fleet was the more you think about the first fleet, the more you realise how amazing this was. It's the greatest um, navigation of a large group of people ever in any source of humanity. What, the Australian first yeah, fleet? Yeah, the first fleet. Well, like, three, three ships from there? Uh, no, there was, uh, I think, More. 11. 11? 11 11? Yeah. Okay. And every single ship got here. Uh, most of the people survived, which, you know, we, we joke now, like, um, you know, like surely a lot of them survived. Uh, back then, voyages, you'd lose up to 70% of people on these long two, three-year voyages. Mm -hmm. And uh, Philip, Philip is uh, just amazing. And for everything you just said, he was great at logistics. He made sure there was he'd have things in place so that there was always food or water or he had the money or he had the contacts. That's another thing most people don't realise about Philip. He knew a lot of people in South America. He'd worked there. He'd worked for the, the, the Portuguese. Um, so he, he knew where to, to stop to get to refresh, to get food, to let people off the boats and have a have a healthy uh, lifestyle on the boats. Uh, and th they got here in the best shape. And the, the greatest uh, example of that is what happened to the second fleet. 
Ah, uh, yes. And maybe something we can talk a bit more in a future fuzzy yeah. logic is what happened after they got here. A little bit off our theme, but I am tempted to, to, to go into that because they almost starved. It was a pretty hairy experience for them, and they only just got by. We might cut to a break. We're going to go to a bit of classic uh, doors, in fact. But uh, during the break, if you want to give us a call and uh, keep help keep two double X going, and the number to call. Don't forget, we've got prizes. Uh, so we've got a signed, framed first dog on the moon print by Andrew Malton. Uh, a night's accommodation for two guests at the Hotel Hotel New Acton. That sounds pretty cool. And we've got family and friends who would have come to visit. Uh, a custom-made coffee table by Boy and Girl Company. And, of course, your reward is the, uh, the glow of uh, keeping us on air. Now, our number on air is... Ah, I've lost the number. I'll give it to you when we come back. Uh, anyway, let's have a bit of the doors here on X Fuzzy Logic.
a bit of classic The Doors there here on 2XX and the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with Phil Horb from the National Dinosaur Museum but also an aficionado of things nautical and uh, well with the occasional use of the horror voice <laughs> thing and me Rod and the number if you want to call us during the next song break is 6247444 Double O and uh, help us out with our radiothon. You can also go to the website, which is 2xxfm.org, and make your donation and puts you in the running for some hot prizes. And uh, donations are tax deductible. Thank you, uh, Mr. Taxman. Now, before the break, we were talking about shipping, and uh, Phil and I were having a bit of a chat during that song. And uh, there's a lot of really fascinating things that go into making a ship, but I just read off my little checklist here of all the things the bits of technology that you need in order to make a functioning ship and returning you home safely we hope uh well first of all you need to know about timber right you need a source of timber you need to be able to carve it uh shape it uh, assemble it in some sort of way you need metal and phil's going to tell us a story about metal in a moment uh you need to make the sails and in fact that explains as Phil was saying to me a moment ago about why they were in this part of the world in the first place rope is related Uh, glass, probably an optional extra but a nice thing for the captain's cabin Uh, you need to be able to design the whole bloody thing so that it doesn't roll over onto its side and and it sails in the wind and performs in the waves and gives you, carries uh, weight and your cargo and everything but it can also get into like shallower water as well. That's always an important thing if you're going to somewhere you don't know. Um, it's not always going to be a deep harbour, so you, n- you need to be able to get close to the land, or else what's the point of being there in the first place? So yeah, there's a lot and of things you don't you have know. To yeah, and you didn't know the water. So when when Cook uh, came here, he th- these waters were uncharted. Mostly, Mo- uh, mostly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but to the degree of accuracy that you'd need right so he th- they sailed up through the um, the coral reefs up in the the great barrier reef didn't he yeah and, it's, and cook was a great cartographer that's the one thing people kind of forget about him his maps were so accurate that uh, the ones from uh, russia uh, russia canada um, were still being used up only until a couple of years ago because they were that accurate really so he was very good at mapping and cartography and and uh yeah the the it was more of a fluke that he hit the uh, Great Barrier Reef. It, it, was, it wasn't like he he designed to do it. It's just that it just got it got big on him. There was so much of it, and the, the well, the, difficult the, difficult waters. And of course, yeah. he making it up as he went along. Like they didn't know where they were, and a coral reef like could just pop up at any moment, couldn't it? Absolutely. And again, one of the fallacies of history is Cook discovered the Great Barrier Reef. No, Cook ran into it. The guy <laughs> who actually discovered it was um, Bougainville, the French explorer, and he came up through the north and saw all the white water saw the coral and went i'm not going that way that's dangerous so he was smart enough not to hit it he just went off and he discovered a lot of uh, Papua new guinea and bougainville uh and this is just a few years before cook so you know the french were were scurrying around this part of the world well before the english were okay and it's not enough just to have your ship sailing the waters you've got to be able to fix the bloody thing yep and Skilled, skilled uh, crew members. That's well. That's what happened ones. to Cook, right? Yeah. And they hoisted, and with the shallow draft, their bark endeavour, which was a shallow, it was basically a, a cargo carrier, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, Cook's Cook was very old when he came to the navy. He was uh, well into his thirties by the time he actually joined the navy. He spent most of his time uh, hauling coal 
on colliers, and that's what the Endeavour was. It was a collier, so he knew those ships very well. He knew that the, the, they were shallow enough to, to get into shallow waters, deep enough to travel through the ocean, and wide enough to carry a lot of goods in them. So he'd very specifically chosen that ship to, to carry. It would have been a bit of a tub, though, would it? It wouldn't have been slow. Oh, yeah, it wouldn't have been the best uh, sailing ship, but, but that, that wasn't was, the point. Yeah, that's not their objective. The objective is, as you keep saying, to get there and get back safely, which they did. But after they hit the coral reef, they hoisted the thing up onto the beach. And it was, luckily, it was, um, nobody knew what to do. They tried a whole bunch of different things. And it comes down to experience. And that's probably the one thing that the British had over the French, is they had a lot of experience on board. And one of the sailors, a very junior officer, had seen them try this thing, I think it's called fothering, where Mm -hmm. they tried to... Uh, drop a sail on the outside of the ship and and run it underneath with ropes pull it uh, across the hull and over the hole and then they could plug in the hole that way. So that was before they hit the beach while they were floundering in the waves. Yeah and that got them off, that got them to the beach so otherwise it was a massive hole they would have just water would have just poured in and they would have been done right there. It's it's hard to imagine I mean here they are what thousands and thousands of miles from anywhere Yeah. Uh, although there were settlements in Indonesia, weren't there? Like, uh, yeah, uh, well, um, the big one's Batavia, so Batavia, yeah. which is Jakarta today, I think. I think, yeah. so, I think so. And Batavia was a huge... Like, there was, you know, um, monasteries, and people said visiting Batavia was like visiting France, like Paris. Like, the, there was boulevards and amazing... So it's a pretty substantial yeah, place, right? But, but that's still a long way. If you're in strife... That's a, that's a long way to go. Yep. So they hauled the thing up, and then what? They would have had some people who knew how to do timber yeah, and work. and then like uh, the ship, the shipboard carpenters who would do everything. They'd build coffins. They'd build wooden legs for the pirates. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they'd have to learn. They knew how to do everything, and they they patched, you know, cut wood, patched it, and uh, off uh, they went. And they would have carried. While, they would have carried weeks. spare timber with them. Some spare timber, and like they'd also carry some spare. Um, Anchors, and that's the other thing that carpenters were needed for. You can't forget, uh, realize how important an anchor is until you don't have one. <laughs> and they'd lose them all the time. You know, sometimes they could just get caught in the coral and they wouldn't be able to pull it up, so they'd just cut it loose or lose it during a storm. Uh, so they'd have to, the carpenters would have to be able to build them new anchors wow. as well. So, yeah, they were carrying a lot of things in these ships. Now, that kind of brings me to mind of our conversation with the Mars Society guys because we're talking about what happens here in that on the red planet and they break apart, uh, you know, like a part breaks yep. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they need something and uh, a 3D printing. I was going to say, yeah, that yeah. must be. And the, uh, the guys were on Fuzzy Logic a few weeks ago talking about 3D printers. There's one uh, on the International Space Station. So, yeah, to be able to keep yourselves self-sufficient while you're there. Now, tell me this story about the metal, the copper cladding on the dolphin, Phil. Well, the whole Endeavour voyage comes back to an early voyage from the HMS Dolphin. And the HMS Dolphin was the first uh, British ship that had uh, copper sheeting all on its hull. And it was hoped that the copper sheeting would stop uh, uh, worms, marine worms, from burrowing into the wood. Torito? Sorry, it's the Toledo worm. Uh, yeah, the, the Toledo worms. Yeah, the, the, the I know it's a crossword clue. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also things like uh, seaweed from growing, because uh, seaweed would act like an anchor and slow you down. Barnacles. So, yeah, barnacles. All the, all those sorts of nasty things. Um, it was hoped the copper sheeting would just remove that entirely, that problem, and it did. The dolphin was one of the most. The, they sent it on a navigation. And it did one of the fastest navigations of the Earth at that time. Well, it did the fastest. It was back. It did a navigation within a year, under a year. And that was unheard of. 
And in fact, it was so unheard of that when the the, the dolphin came back, uh, the uh, the British naval uh, nav- uh, admiralty didn't believe that they'd actually done the navigation, uh, so they sent it again. They changed captains, that's it. and that was a guy called John Byron, who was the grandfather of Lord Byron, the poet. Oh, really? And Byron did it again, and on on that voyage, they discovered Tahiti. And Tahiti, if you know your story of the endeavour, is the reason why Cook came into the Pacific, because they went to Tahiti to help uh, study the transit of Venus. Ah, the transit of Venus. And uh, also flax. Uh, Flax. Flax is the big thing. So uh, they started discovering flax uh, down, especially in uh, places like New Zealand. And at the time, there was a bit of an oil crisis going on in the world, and all the world's flax, and flax was used to make not only the rope, but also the uh, sails. And Catherine the Great, the greatest supplier of flax, was Russia. And Russia just took over the entire supply of it and refused to supply it to England anymore. They were asking for outrageous prices. So England was desperate to find a new source of flax. And this discovery of flax in the, in the Pacific well, was a big reason why they came down. That's, that's fantastic. And it's an example of how we go further and further afield to get a resource that we need. And uh, as, of course, human population goes, where we're going to go, well, maybe we go to Mars. Yeah, maybe say, we'll, it looks like we're going to Mars. <laughs> maybe we'll go to... I think we'll break to another track. Now, you've chosen this one, Phil. It's uh, Church on Fuzzy Logic and 2XX, and thanks for the callers just during that break. Now, on our ship uh, with uh, Phil Hoare and myself, Rod... Sailing away happily through the Pacific. <laughs> sailing away. Of course, you've got to eat. And what are you going to eat on this long journey? Now, it was just kind of coming into their consciousness around about the time of Cook's voyage that uh, vitamin C was important. And what the great scourge of the sailors of this era were uh, scurvy. And uh, it goes, in fact, to a gentleman named James Lind, who in 1747 did one of the first ever clinical trials, anything that we would today pass as you know, moderately scientific, rigorous clinical trials on the effect of vitamin C. And he was able to show that uh, vitamin C was a important factor, a critical factor, in fact, of uh, avoiding scurvy. And so Captain Cook was aware of this on his voyage, but he was a bit... He wasn't very scientific in the way he went about it, but he got his crew to eat stuff like sauerkraut. Yeah, lovely sauerkraut. A lovely sauerkraut. Things uh, that could be tinned and stored. Uh, it had stuff called Rob's, which was a concentrate of orange and lemon juice. Uh, and he had various tricks to get his crew to take this stuff because it probably didn't taste that good. Well, and a lot of them were very nervous about this stuff because, you know, sailors are very, very... Um uh, superstitious lot so to bring in anything new like uh, they were always very su- superstitious about that so uh, it started off nobody would touch the sauerkraut nobody was interested in it and plus it obviously didn't taste very nice and probably uh, left the body even worse like a bit of farting on board maybe and something those uh, Germans would eat as well we don't yeah, yeah. we, we poms <laughs> don't eat that um, so yeah he, he did a bit of mental trickery on them some reverse psychology by basically saying this isn't for you this is only the officers can have this you wouldn't you know you you poor people you're on the boat enough. You're, yeah you're not good enough you're not going to want this stuff this is just for us and kind of created a desire in them to have the the sauerkraut and it seemed to do the effect you know they, they were reasonably healthy crew for most of the voyage but they did get scurvy and even banks got scurvy and yeah, yeah and and it affects the bodies in all sorts of nasty where their gums go soft and uh, uh, they, even the teeth can fall out. Well, taking it back to the uh, 
the dolphin voyage. So um, Byron was world renowned at the time because he was on a much the very first circumnavigation of the of the globe with a fleet, which was the Anson voyage, and he was just a midshipman then. And um, they tried to invade South America and then come under South America all the way into the Pacific and invade um, Indonesia. And uh, everything went wrong. They got so sick that one of the sailors on board was suffering scurvy so much that he'd, he'd been um, in uh, the Battle of Boyne or something 50 years earlier. And the wound in his leg that had healed 50 years earlier reopened. He was that sick that the body literally was just pulling itself apart. Oh, and nasty. a 50-year-old wound, broken leg, re-broke itself. So oh. these guys, you know, that's a nasty way to go. That's, 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 that's fatal. And so I gather it's breaking down the connective tissue in the body. And, and it's also the body trying to combat it, I believe, by um, taking out minerals out of the body itself to try and oh, okay. uh, uh, find out what's just to keep the body working. So on, on, on Cook's voyage, I've been quoting Cook or talking about Cook a lot because obviously he's one of the great navigators. And as you said um, earlier, Phil, but um, he had, they made use of what they call anti-scorbitic yeah. stuff like seaweed and stuff like that they found while they were en route. So they had to keep themselves supplied. They couldn't carry enough to keep them going from Britain all the way to here. So they would stop at various points along the way and stock up. Yeah, and they'd be testing everything. So when they arrived, like when they arrived in Botany Bay, they'd try everything. They'd eat everything. They'd um, test like what they thought was fruit, and they'd actually look at what the natives were eating as well. So they were always because they need to resupply. They needed to restock. Um, so it was always a, you know they were quite brave people for you know in, ending up eating very strange things, <laughs> um, and that that actually got got them in trouble up in uh, Cooktown today and the Cook River where the Endeavour or the Endeavour River where the uh, Endeavour was banked after hitting the, uh, the Great Barrier Reef the natives all came in because um, they saw that these white guys had shown up and were taking everything they were taking all the sea turtles out of the ocean they were taking everything and the, uh, the, the English were actually staking out the turtles alive on the beaches to, to store them because the turtles could live for quite a while and the natives had run on shore and free them and, and let them go hoping that the, that would drive the white guys away so, and that's actually when the very first kangaroo, there was uh, an American on board, um, he shot the first kangaroo. So, and that's where the whole legend of what does kangaroo mean comes from. Okay, because in, in the book that I've been reading about the endeavour, um, it went very wrong and, they, and it was only by luck that they managed to, uh, to avoid a major skirmish with the, uh, what, the, the native or Aborigines. Yeah, like it was going wrong just right across the board. It had been a very successful voyage up until then. But, um, yeah, once they hit uh, Queensland, it wasn't happy times. Ah. And they had to find food. They had to find water. And that's the other one you have to remember. You have to store water. So um, things like casks, you know, no point letting your casks rot. You've got to, once a water cask is empty, you can't just throw it away. You've now got to prepare it because it's going to need to be used again when you find a water source. You're going to have to somehow get that water cask ashore, fill it up for, full of water, and imagine how much a cask full of water would weigh. Well, one litre of water weighs one kilo, so, so it doesn't, doesn't take long for it to be a really heavy burden. But maybe we should do a future fuzzy logic on uh, how various explorers poison themselves with the native <laughs> foods, like Mawson. Or, or just poisoning themselves. Well, <laughs> yes. But, but when they ate something so Burke and Wills, they ate the Nardu. 
the the native uh, it's sort of plant that's out around in a minka in that that region it's a little low ground plant and i think it's got uh, some toxins in it and if you don't treat it the right way uh, it, it'll damage you and the famous one is the franklin voyage to find the northwest with the, with passage lead. with the lead yes the lead ceiling and stuff so and that's the franklin who in fact was the governor of tasmania yeah and started the very first scientific journal outside of England, the Royal Society, has the Royal Society Journal. The second journal outside of America was the Tasmanian Royal Society Journal. So, okay. And that well, was he and Lady Franklin. She's a Jane Franklin. She yeah. was an amazing character. And one of the first paleontologists in Australia. Now, have you ever been lost, Phil? Um, been lost theoretically knowing where we're going. Like uh, using the um, sat-nav in England is a real treat because uh, those sat-navs in the country lanes of England can get you... You know where you are, but you're so lost you don't know how to get uh, out. Okay, but have you ever been in the middle of the scrub and going, I have no idea where I am? Yeah, uh, down at um, near Big Hole, Bongonia, near the gorge. The yeah, yeah, another there. one. Yeah. Yep. yeah, we got lost there once as on a scouting trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really unsettling experience. Now, I was walking across the paddocks of my uh, father-in-law's place, our farm, with my wife and our two kids, and we... We knew, we'd walked this country dozens and dozens of times, right? It was his own farm, for crying out loud. And there was a ridge line. So we'd go to the ridge, and we knew we hit the side fence. we follow the fence back, get to the house, and we're all home and have a cup of tea, and, and we're done. But a bushfire had come through, taken out the fence. And we walked straight past where the fence was into the neighbour's property. And now this is the scrubland, the TT tree scrubland down at the south coast. <laughs> this area and it was an overcast day so there's no sun there's no visual cue we were far enough back from the ocean that we couldn't hear anything and this featureless rolling country and we vaguely knew where we were but it took us a long time to get back and it was really unpleasant it doesn't take much panic to to make you realize yeah yeah forget the th the simple things you've been taught oh yeah anyway we, we we did manage to get but we nearly spent the night in the scrub now the other place that i've got lost phil and this will resonate with you was in dampier oh really yeah there's a little island uh, off the coast of dampier where i used to go with my dad and his mates uh fishing a shack and uh, and i would go off on a walk on my own and there's a place called enderby island which is interesting in history for its own reasons because a Catalina flying boat in World War II got stranded there and the guys spent several months uh, on this island. Now you can imagine spinifex grass, rolling hills 60 metres high, roughly red, you know those rusty red boulders all strewn around the place and I thought you couldn't get lost on an island. Well I'm <laughs> here to tell you, you can. <laughs> And Take skill by the sounds of things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I knew I knew where east and west were roughly, but the the shape of the island was something I hadn't prepared for. And uh, yeah, okay, dickhead, I should have figured it out. So anyway, it was a bit of a long story, and I eventually got back, but um, not a lot of fun. But now imagine you're on the other side of the globe. How the hell do you know where you are? And so there were a lot of debate around about this time about. How are you going to do it? The nautical charts, of course, we've talked about Cook and his mapping, was one thing if you had them for wherever you were. And, and the problem then was most of them were just visual charts, like 
somebody just seeing the coastline and drawing it, not actually using right techni- technical it, skills to and get that, it correct. Yep. And that leads us into how they, you know, where on that map you are, latitude and longitude being critical things. We take it for granted now, like you said, GPS. Yeah. But there's a lot of debate about whether you do your navigation now. Just go back a step. Uh, latitude is how far north and south you are. That's not too hard because of the angle the sun tells you. Uh, longitude, how far east and west you are, is actually quite difficult. And the region around Dampier, uh, Phil will twig immediately to this, the, a lot of the early sailors would, would pick up the trade winds going to the Spice Islands, to Indonesia. They would sail east and then hang a left at the right moment. <laughs> as long as they did it at the right moment. <laughs> exactly. And often they didn't know their longitude and they would hit the shore and sink. But there was a lot of debate about, uh, let's see now, the timing was 1707, uh, 1760s, there was the Board of Longitude, and it came after a disaster in which five ships off the Scilly Islands, they lost 2,000 sailors, five ships, they all went to the bottom because the captain, or the admiral, whatever he was, didn't know his longitude. And in fact, the guy, the sailor, who had alerted him saying, look, I think we're out on a longitude, got, uh, I think he was, um, what's the term, the death penalty. He was for challenging the authority of the admiral. (laughs) Which Uh, is never a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, it turned out he was right. So that triggered uh, the board of longitude and a reward of £20,000 to someone who could figure out a way of doing it. Now we have a classic conflict of inf- interest and a conflict of different ways of doing it. One was the, the star navigation and the, uh, the, the astronomers from the Royal Observatory in Greenwich and they were in competition in a sense with the guys who made clock and in particular John Harrison who made these four clocks. Have you been to the Greenwich Museum, Phil? I have not. I do, I do recommend it. There's this fantastic book called Longitude by Darva Savell. It's a short book, and it describes the struggles that John Harrison went through. Because if you know your time exactly, if you know it precisely, then you can figure out, if you know where you left from, you can figure out where you are east and west. Uh, So this guy named uh, Neville Maskelon, who was the nautical... He was the creator of this nautical almanac which has basically showed the position of stars relative to the moon, I think it is. And he was also one of the big guys involved in the transit. Yes. And, and had a lot to do with, I think it's Charles Green, who was yes. the... Oh, Correct. I'm, I'm jumping ahead of you, sorry. We're, no, but you, 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 that's an astronomical theme, so that explains why Cook was out this way in the first place. Yep, largely. and why he had a navigator, a, a, an astronomer on board. That's right. From the Royal Society. Yeah, they were here to observe the transit of Venus. But... Uh, now, you imagine these nautical tables, these astro- astronomical tables. They were like pages and pages and pages. No calculators, no computers. You're going to have to sit there by hand and work out these uh, complicated tables. And then the guys on the ship have got to make an observation that allows them to position the moon relative to the stars and therefore where they are at any given moment. Uh, a lot of <laughs> a recipe for errors, basically. Uh, yeah. oh, I was just going to say, and um, also a, a scope for her- heroism. Um, one of the great, the gr- possibly the greatest source of navigation ever was William Bly after the 
Oh, the mutiny yes. on the bounty. Yes. bounty. He was on his little boat uh, somewhere off side of Tahiti and uh, managed to, in his little small boat, get himself all the way back to Jakarta and hit it head on. And that is like in a small rowboat, you know, only lost one guy and they only lost that guy because they tried to get on uh, on an island and get some water and they got attacked by natives. And he managed to get all these guys home. So, you know, we always look at William Bly as a terrible guy for the not only the mutiny on the bounty, but the mutiny, the rum rebellion. But, um, yeah, he did one of the, possibly the greatest sources of navigation ever. That was exceedingly uh, good bit of work. Uh, but he was a characterless bloke. <laughs> and I think they found him very droll and not he wasn't very tactful. His, his people skills weren't great. Which is why he ended up in Sydney, because the, the, they wanted to break the power of the, the, the army there. And so uh, the the army were the ones controlling the rum trade. So they brought in Bly to, to and his bull-nosed, hard-headed ways to break the the stranglehold that the army had on the on the colony. And he did, but ended up with a mut- another mutiny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I think the the picture we're painting so far, and I did a little outline of it at the at the top of the show. So. There's a lot of things have to come together for you to be able to run one of these voyages. So we've got the ship, we've got the the mapping, the the cartography, we've got the navigation, you've got to feed everybody and you've got to organise the whole thing so that people will work together to in a productive, hopefully, way without too many mutinies. (laughs) (laughs) A bit of classic uh, Cat Stevens there, miles from nowhere. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in the middle of the ocean on the other side of the planet and one of those ships and just saying you know up to you guys you're on your own you get in trouble you sort it out you know the um control it must have taken like not of just the officers but the crew as well like to the con- discipline you mean yeah like to control them otherwise you know they might lose faith and go we're never going to make it back and jump ship or something um, which did happen in a lot of places but um, to keep your crew together, that's amazing. Yeah, you've got to work together. Now, speaking of being in trouble, uh, last Sunday I went out to the hall markets and uh, there was a little stall there and they were from the Wombat Sanctuary. Now, what I didn't know is that the common wombat, the one that you hit in your car and you see the corpses lying on the edge of the road, uh, it's in trouble. It's not classified as endangered or threatened anything at this point, but it's suffering from people shooting. Uh, and they told me some terrible stories about what people do to wombats. I was just appalled. Is that because of the wombat holes and things on farms? And oh, the damage they no. Well, the, and- the, the person, there's a wombat sanctuary out near Gundaroo. And I'm going to go out there with my recorder and everything. We're going to do some stories on this. She was sitting beside the road and admiring a wombat because she, I think her home is in southern England or something. And she went, oh, this, aren't they just a wonderful animal? Oh, look, listen, you've got to hear, see the grin on Phil's face because they are, they are just the most glorious animal, okay? Uh, so she's sitting there on the roadside and a car came along, swerved and killed the wombat. As in uh, deliberately? Yes, yes. And, and she told, they told us other similar stories, so I'm just really sickened. But the wombat is suffering from a thing called the mange which I guess is pretty much the same as what dogs can get. Uh, and it's a, carried by the flea, and it's a fungal virus, uh, not virus, bacterial infection, gets into the skin, 
and it's uh, ultimately it's lethal and this is really starting to knock back the common wombat population so really really unhappy to hear about this and we can do stuff to help um, I don't have the website handy on me at the moment but uh, oh, sleepyburrows.com it is, uh, look them up uh, so there's a sanctuary out near Gundaroo and uh, Phil the Wombat, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but uh, it has a proud heritage in Australia. It does. Well, a lot of the animals in Australia do, but you know these animals have been around for nearly 20 million years, and most species don't hang around for 2 million years. So to have survived this long, um, they're a pretty special animal, and they've, they've, over the years they've come in many different shapes and forms. We've had giant ones the size of rhinos called Diprotodon. We had one with a trunk, like an elephant's trunk, um, so, and uh, the, Australia's largest mammalian carnivore was a thing called Thylacoleo, which is often called the marsupial lion. And it's actually a vombatiform. It's part of the wombat family. So a wombat was an, a lion-sized carnivore with one of the strongest bites ever. Oh. So these wombats are amazing creatures. Would, would they eat, eat meat? Or they Absolutely, would, yeah. They would. So a, wom- a large wombat with attitude and big teeth. And we found them out at Wee Jasper. So they were, they were around here. They were around Canberra. So... Amazing things, and could be the the source of the drop bear, the legend of the drop bear. <laughs> yes, the drop bear that sits in the tree, and uh, um, and there's also the northern hairy nose and the southern hairy nose wombat. And the northern one's the one in big trouble. That is that is on the endangered species. There's list. only a few hundred of those left. So we're going to write that. In fact, we're going to do an ask Fuzzy on that very question about the mange. What is the mange? Uh, we'll maybe write a feature story for Fairfax or another publication. We'll see what happens there. Uh, also coming up on, on today's Ask Fuzzy about uh, why grass is green, which is a bit of a staple there, literally, especially if you're a wombat. Oh, I had to ride a unicycle. We did a couple of weeks ago. I've been riding, learning to ride a unicycle. That's really fun. And one about the limits to the universe. <laughs> 